This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We're in the middle of Season 6, and my name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I teach at Loyola Institutes for Pastoral Studies, and I write a monthly column for St. Anthony Messenger Magazine. I'm here with my friend Dan Horan. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York. He's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago, and he's a columnist for the National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. David, it is so good to be with you. Words fail. (laughs) We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank out there who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio, an extended discussion or interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. Today, we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be talking about the New York Times editorial board endorsement that was actually a non-endorsement. We're going to be talking about Cardinal Sarah and the Benedict Sixteenth. Uh, controversy on priestly celibacy. I don't know if controversy is the right word, but we're going to be talking about it. Oh, it's controversial. And finally, we're going to be talking in our ongoing series about the sacraments. We'll be talking in the third segment about the Eucharist. And so that is what we'll be doing today. But for right now, Dan, what have you been doing in the last couple of weeks? David, many things, most of which involving the beginning of the new semester. So we're right, we're underway. It's week three. Our I think we talked about this in the last episode, and it sounded like you at IPS at Loyola kind of started around the same time, shortly after the new year. So things are moving along. It's good. Great students. Good good material. It's very cold now in Chicago. Been around here, you know, haven't traveled all that much so far at the beginning of January, which is nice. I was sharing with you off air, though, that I am a very old man trapped in a slightly less old body. Yesterday morning when I was running pretty early in the morning, as is my wont, in the frigid cold of the shore of Lake Michigan, about three and a half miles into my run, I felt some really uncomfortable pain in my hips and back. And I realized, I don't know if it was the spasm of the cold in my muscles because I didn't stretch properly or I turned my head the wrong way, moving my foot at the right time, you know, any of these things. And and I kind of threw my back out. So David can see this because he's in this room with me in the studio you can't, but I'll be kind of like squirming and moving around because it's it's uncomfortable. But as I also shared with David off air, 
you know, as with the flu I had back in December, I, one of the kind of spiritual practices I've been working on in recent years is when I am uncomfortable or stressed or in pain to try to, the, the old kind of churchy language is offered up, but to at least be very mindful of those who don't have the luxury of an occasional illness or pain or suffering, but maybe enduring it on a longer term or kind of indefinite level and uh, and to offer prayers for them to make it kind of to decenter me in that. So I find that very, very helpful. And yet I'm still in pain. So David, how are you? <laughs> I, I'm first of all, I'm, I'm sympathetic and very sorry that you're in pain. And as a person who just turned 49 this past weekend, that's right. Belated happy birthday. Thank you. Let me let me tell you, the pain never goes away. No, I know. <laughs> but the uh, the, the nice thing is is that you get sort of more, uh, your edges get more smoothed in dealing with it, I guess. But uh, it was a good birthday, and we celebrated in the grand style of the Dalt household, which means, well, we do this with every family member every birthday. We go to the Medici restaurant on 57th Street, which is a great restaurant here in Hyde Park, and then we go to the 57th Street bookstore, and the birthday person gets to pick out a couple of books. And that's what we did, and it was delightful, and we and, and then it, otherwise it was a very quiet weekend. I'm also blessed that oftentimes my birthday happens over the Martin Luther King Jr. celebration, and so it's a long weekend, and so got Monday off, everybody, and so we kind of had uh, a house full of kids, and, and we were just uh, enjoying our time together and also catching up on things like PBS Kids episodes. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Any reveal about the birthday books? Anything oh, interesting? The, the interests that I have tend towards the kind of very narrow. I like books on physics and particularly books on the history of nuclear power and the, the development of, of nuclear weapons. And so I, I picked up a couple of books on that subject. There's a, a book on quantum physics I picked up, kind of a pop science book. And the, one of the biographies that came out recently of Enrico Fermi, who is a, a Hyde Park kind of say. denizen, Enrico Fermi's home is here in our neighborhood, and the first atomic pile he helped to create here in the neighborhood. But it's a book called The Pope of Physics, and oh. so I will, I will enjoy digging into that in the next few weeks. Very interesting. Yeah. Is Anthony Hopkins going to play Fermi as the Pope of Physics? Too? You know, I don't know, but that's a good question because did you, have you seen the the two popes? I sure all? have. Okay. Yeah. How, how have we not talked about this? I haven't seen the two popes yet. That's, oh, that's why. All right. Yeah. Next I've episode, got, I've got kids. See, so I, I, I can. It's I, kid friendly. I, I believe you, but I, but the but kids, they would be bored too. Yeah. If, if I said, "Hey, we want to watch the two popes," they'd be like, "We really want to watch PBS Kids." <laughs> so <laughs> more Daniel Tiger, please. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, very cool. Yeah. The uh, I think about. Uh, all that took place with regard to the Manhattan Project here in Hyde Park. Every time I walk past, you know, near the library there, the, the Regenstein Library, there's this big monument to the first reaction that was controlled reaction. Not just a monument. That is the exact location that Chicago Pile 1 was located. Yeah. 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 And that's scary stuff. Yeah. It's a lot of heavy things to think about on yeah. a cold morning. By the way, when what, given the fact that we're looking out the window and it's completely like iced over right now, when you travel all over the world, do you ever like have going through your head at this time of year when you land someplace like warm and balmy? Do you have like the Led Zeppelin going through your head? I come from the land of the ice and snow. And the I rarely have Led Zeppelin in my head. Fair enough. Um, but that's because I'm a child of the 80s and not the 70s. And no. <laughs> I do think of it. I, I do have on my phone, you know, in the weather app, you know, whatever the local 
GPS thing is, and then the next thing is Chicago. So I often kind of see what's happening if I'm not here. Mm-hmm. And this weekend, I ha- I will happen to be in the Bay Area in California. So it, mm. whatever the weather is going to be out there, it's going to be better than here, I assume. So yeah, and we'll see. Yeah, well, uh, th- that's probably a, as good a place as any to take a break and get into the segments. So I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I am Dan Haran, and I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about news, politics, current events, and a variety of other things, all through the lens of our shared Catholic faith. For the past 160 years, the editorial board of the New York Times newspaper has been offering endorsements of candidates for various primaries and political offices. This year, the Times editorial board made the promise that their endorsement process would be, quote, the most transparent to date. To that end, all the interviews with candidates were filmed, with edited excerpt and full transcripts of the conversations made available to the public. Despite these new approaches, the Times drew criticism from several sides when its editorial board made the controversial decision last week, with a lot of fanfare to add, to name not one but two candidates to receive their endorsement for the upcoming Democratic presidential primary both Senators Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. The choice left many critics scratching their heads, in part because it wasn't technically a choice. In making this kind of non-endorsement style of endorsement, the editorial board characterized the two candidates as the radical and the realist. Instead of making a clear case for one style of politics or politician over the other, the Times seemed to want to split the difference between the two or, David, as they like to say, have their cake and eat it too. What are we to make of this? There's just so much here that I want to think about because the characterization, first of all, of Warren as the radical and Klobuchar as the realist, I want to kind of dig into that and and begin to ask, what is it that they are trying to telegraph in doing that? Are they trying to say that Warren is pie in the sky, but they're going to include her anyway, and that Klobuchar is really the safe choice? Or are they saying that it's a time for radical politics and that this might actually be a choice that we can bring into the political arena? I'd be interested in talking about that, too, among so many other things. But can we back the train up just a little bit? Sure. Here's the thing that I found most sort of perplexing initially and then, in retrospect, kind of offensive about the Times process. Now, the Times, which I am a subscriber to The New York Times. I support The Times. I think it's it's really some of the best journalism in the world. I love Michael Barbaro, the host of The Daily. I listen to that pretty much Monday through Friday mornings, and I appreciate the great work that goes into that. They have since moved into the visual sort of reporting area with this, the weekly program that is in partnership with Hulu, the streaming service. So they do these videos. And it was really under the auspices of Hulu that this endorsement transparency, quote unquote, unfolded. But actually, in my eyes, what it looked like was including in the print buildup to this, was that it was a reality TV show. It's yeah. like, the, who's the next endorsement? Come on down. And the way that they, the board sort of grilled and, and quote-unquote interviewed each of these candidates, it, it was basically a New York Times version of Donald Trump's The Apprentice. You know, who's going to get the job? Who's going to be fired? You know, who made the best cake? Who's designed the best dress? Like all these reality shows. Is that your sense too? Yeah. And so one of the things that came out was like, for example, during the videotaping of the Bernie Sanders, what we got of that was an edited version of that conversation. And what got noted a lot of times with this was the reactions of the African-Americans around the table. 
And one of the things that was pointed out in kind of thinking about this is that editing is never neutral, that editing is a very deliberative process and that you can create a lot of nuance and emotional kind of overtones in terms of how you edit things. And uh, the, for those that want to get technical in film technology, this is called the Kuleshov effect. When you take two disconnected images and you put them next to one another, you can create emotional overtones because of the connection that are not necessarily there in the moment. Sort of like the editing of comedy stand-up specials where the shots of the audience laughing may or may not have been in response to the joke just told. Correct. And I'm not trying to accuse the New York Times or the Weekly or Hulu of necessarily intentionally doctoring but I will say that our own biases play into the editing process. And this happens when I work with clients all the time. I have taste. I have things that I think are appropriate and good and that lead to a certain type of aesthetic. And sometimes that matches with my clients and sometimes it doesn't. Well, people who have the ability to edit these pieces, they have a sense of rhythm. They have a sense of timing. They have a sense of story and dramatic arcs can be built by these kind of Kuleshov effects. And so there's either an intentional or an unintentional opportunity there to begin to build a story around this that makes people want to keep watching. Ooh, look at their reaction or whatever. And that's all to say I'm much more interested in the transcriptions of the interactions than I am in the edited kind of videotape of the interactions because of the possibility of this aesthetic coloration of the event. So two more thoughts I have just about the process before we get into the results. You know, one is, in my opinion, and as somebody who has a journalism background and in, in, in formal training and in terms of a degree in journalism, I just want to highlight that one of the key elements, just like the directorial and production and editing sort of biases that are implicit, at least like you're describing, in various media platforms, uh, whether it's visual or audio and so forth, we recognize in the field of journalism that there's no such thing as truly objective reporting. Absolutely not, right? Now, I had a conversation with a friend recently who was asking me about this. You know, she was observing that the structure of most news stories follows a kind of pyramidal structure in that, you know, a third of the way down, this kind of information appears. And toward the end of the article, there's often a recap of the general details that may have appeared in a previous article and these kinds of things. And I said, yeah, no, no, you learn how to do this. All of this is to say that one of the main principles of ethical journalism is you don't make the story about you. Mm. And one of the concerns I have about this is the editorial board basically, under the guise of transparency, made the process about themselves. Oh, look how we do this. Look at us, you know, in this room, we're wielding this power. All these candidates are coming to us with the exception of three who opted out. That's one observation is that I feel like the, the editorial board made the story about themselves mm -hmm. and their choice and their decision. And analogously, and this may seem unfair to some, but analogously, again, to Donald Trump is the one who the apprentice was not about the apprentice. It was about Donald Trump and about how he was going to make a decision in that conversation in the boardroom on each episode and so forth. The second thing I would say is there's a bit of a Heisenberg principle at play here, too, mm -hmm. which is that neither the candidates nor the editorial board members are working or acting or thinking or, or behaving in a vacuum. With all of those cameras and all that equipment there and knowing that everything's being recorded, they are responding to that, conscious of that, even if it's not the most pressing thing they're aware of. And I think that affects behavior, it affects responses, it affects engagement, and distracts from the kind of meaningful conversation that 
the board, I think, could benefit from if they were just, you know, even if they recorded it and the transcripts came out about the conversation, I think adding the visual, you know, dimension to it and all the crew that's required to make a television quality recording affects the process itself. Well, and I want to bring in here the catechism in paragraph 2496, the means of social communication, especially the mass media, can give rise to a certain passivity among users, making them less than vigilant consumers of what is said and shown. I think that that's exactly the danger that we, we've been touching on here, is that with a slick production, with the notion that someone else has done the deliberation for us, has done the heavy lifting for us, there's a danger that we are being sort of led to a less judicious process as citizens in this. I mean, this, this, is, this is a responsibility that the New York Times and other major media outlets play. Yeah, but it's also understandably subjective. I mean, the term editorial itself implies that. And so this example from the catechism may or may not apply here. I think that's true, broadly speaking. But, you know, as an independent news outlet, I don't think it's necessarily the responsibility of, of the Times. They, I mean, they could do whatever they want. I, I think the thing that I – I don't think they're violating any kind of social norm other than I think they undermine their own credibility in this process. Well, then let's put the question on the floor, and that is – they came up with a decision that wasn't a decision. Yeah, let's get to the content. Yeah, what, right? yeah. what, what is going on with that? What, why do you think, having looked at this process, that they decided to split the difference and to characterize it in the way that they did? I have no stinking idea. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I mean, there are some factors. They're just matters of fact worth naming. There are two women who are contenders right now. I mean... Tulsi Gabbard's still in the race, technically, though I doubt that's going to persist for long. And so maybe in the wake of the 2016 lack of the crack of the glass ceiling with Hillary Clinton, I mean, maybe there's a gender dynamic there. I don't presume that to be the case. That may just be coincidental, because I also think then there's the ideological case that, that we talked about here at the kind of the topper, which is, you know, the radical and the realist, quote unquote. And so maybe they wanted to sweep a sort of ideological range I don't know. I don't know how because the, the positions are so very different. It's it's very perplexing to me. And you can't endorse two people for one office. This is my point. So sweeping the ideological range is not what an what an endorsement is supposed to do. An endorsement is, is supposed to say one person. It's supposed to come down to a one choice. Yeah. And both in, in picking two, but also in picking two and saying, well, one is the kind of wild haired radical and one is the is the button down realist. It's like saying you get both cake and broccoli, but really kind of pushing the broccoli kind of forward and saying the cake's on the table. This is let's go for the broccoli. It's like who, but who is you, who is your cake and broccoli, David? We can get into that another time. But yeah, I see your point. I, you know what I'm reminded of for for listeners who are fans of the HBO show Veep with uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus and that really amazing cast. There's a kind of a minor recurring character who is a I think a either a childhood or earlier life friend of Vice President slash President Selena Myers, who comes in and she's like brought in to help advise the president at various points with difficult decision making. And she just offers both sides every time. So she's like, well, you could launch the missiles at this country. You know, that would be perfectly reasonable. Or you could not launch the missile. You know, there's never she would never decide anything. She would just constantly pose all the possibilities, and that's kind of how I feel about this. I mean, it's it basically is is it's no news. It's it's a they nullified their own impact. So here here's my take, and that is the New York Times at the end of the day 
has no idea ideologically how to range itself against Donald Trump and what Donald Trump has brought to the political landscape. And so this is the Times editorial board's basically doing the shrug emoji at this point. I guess. Yeah, no, I think you're right. But but again, that's why I kind of led a moment ago with the gender dimension, because I'm like, the only thing that these these two candidates have in common is they both happen to be female. So let me make sure that I'm following you. So because there's kind of the shrug of we don't know what to do against Trump, we may as well endorse women. Is I that... mean, that's one. I think that's a reasonable reading <laughs> okay. Frank, of the Times' decision, because if it was purely ideological, you know, again, th- otherwise they don't make any sense together. Yeah. You know, it would be different, for instance, if they, you know, if they said, well, we want we're going to pick, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren for the so-called radical and we're going to pick Pete Buttigieg as the realist. Or we're going to pick Joe Biden as the, you know, as the realist and and we're going to pick, I don't know, who Tom Steyer or somebody, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I don't mean to project a sort of gender thing. It just it pops to my mind frequently because I'm trying to see, OK, well, what what was the choice? It came down to these two. Presumably, let's say it came down to these two candidates and there was some kind of hung jury. Right. There was mm-hmm. gridlock. I guess. I don't know. I didn't watch the Hulu special, so I'm not I'm not sure. I just read the reports and I felt like for the whole week prior Every week they were releasing the transcripts and summaries of each of the candidates' interviews, like three at a time. And I'm like, what is this? What is this? I feel like it's some kind of contest, you know, like the next American Voice or one of these programs. And we're getting like the, I don't know, the slow drip, everything about it was was off-putting to me. So in your estimation, are Warren and Klobuchar sort of equally weighted in terms of their possible ability to be great presidents? Let me put it this way. I I think quite literally anybody whose hat is in the ring right now, including kind of these underdog billionaires like uh, Michael Bloomberg, I I think any of them would be better than Donald Trump. So in that regard, frankly, I would have been more impressed if the New York Times had endorsed the bumper sticker I saw over the holiday break that said, any functioning adult 2020. If the New York Times just endorsed literally anybody else, then I think I would have been more contented with that than this this current setup. I mean, how about you? Well, what I'm chuckling at is the fact that they basically did that with this non-endorsement endorsement. <laughs> they basically said, these two will be fine. Let's let... And, and I want to make sure that I'm clear that that in in particular, I am very impressed with Elizabeth Warren. I have been less impressed with some of the reportage about Amy Klobuchar, partly because... And, and it may just be the way in which the reporting has chosen to frame her story, but there is a lot more sort of contention around her ability to control her behavior with her staff that concerns me. But in terms of kind of the policies, I, I tend to lean more towards Warren because Warren's getting more to the kind of lefty camp that I want to be in. And I think that she's incredibly competent. So I'm, I'm much more in the Warren camp in this choice. That being said, I think that of the choices that were there, I think that the New York Times had better choices on the table, but that's my that's my personal opinion. Yeah, it's interesting. I took that the Washington Post has this little app kind of thing on their site right now where you you can answer 20 questions. They had asked 87 questions of the the Democratic candidates and and that tr- it kind of like aligns you with the candidate you most agree with. And I was very surprised, frankly, in, in my response. You know, again, this is only taking into consideration the Democratic Party. But Warren was number two, you know, in terms of the number of questions, I think 
we agreed in 11 out of 20 questions together. What I was surprised by was, do you know who my, the, the one I agreed with the most? I, I have a bet, but go ahead. And I want to hear it. So, strangely, my bet is Pete Buttigieg. No. Really? No. He was, he was in the top five. It was Tom Steyer. What? I know. <laughs> I know. I could not believe it. I uh, went with my safe choice, and then I went with my realist choice, and then, and then I went, went with my <laughs> radical choice. And my radical Never choice Never in a choice. million years. <laughs> Never in a million years would I have thought that. Goodness. But it just goes to show both the, the, the kind of silliness of some of these tests as well, but also the people that you are drawn to because of their charism or their leadership qualities or something is different necessarily from the policies somebody supports. I mean, Tom Steyer is a is a multi-billionaire guy who loves to wear tartan ties and it just freaks me out, the tie thing. I'm not, I'm not generally a fan of his. I wouldn't on paper ever in a million years think, oh, I'd be in alignment with this kind of billionaire tycoon, except even on issues of economy and taxation and this kind of stuff, his positions stand really with mine and frankly with somebody like Warren's too. He believes in a wealth tax. He believes in all these things. So as I look at it, like at the policies themselves that that apparently we align with, I think it would make sense. On the other hand, I was so shocked to get that response. What is the point of this? The point is I think actually – you know, I would agree with you. I think of the two, I'm more inclined to support Warren. She was my senator for a number of years when I was in Boston as well and, and thought she did a good job in the Senate. Uh, and before that, obviously, with the, you know, the establishment of the Consumer Protection Bureau. Yeah, I think very highly of her. I, I, I have tended to kind of dismiss perhaps maybe more than you have, and, and that may be for the worse. I don't know. The, the reporting around so – it was really the early reporting around Klobuchar – and some of her disgruntled former staff members and this kind of stuff, uh, and some of the more kind of crazy stories about her eating salads with combs and this kind of thing. I'm not so concerned about that in, in a way. You know, look, none of these politicians are entirely, quote unquote, nice people. Mm. And I don't mean that as an insult. You know, I've often said Jesus Christ was not a nice guy. You don't crucify nice guys, you know. And so I don't assume that people who've made it to this level of political power are just like friendly, lovey, nice people. So that's not my big gripe with Klobuchar. It's 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 a lot of other things, including policy stuff. I, I think she's too moderate in my estimation, which may be exactly what the country needs right now. I don't know. But at this point, back to the New York Times, I don't know what they were thinking. Neither hot nor cold. They will never mind. Anyway. There was no Goldilocks. They didn't even <laughs> pick a middle. I mean, if they had picked... Goldilocks? I was quoting our Lord and Savior. No, no, no I know. But I was I was talking about at least Goldilocks has kind of an outcome. You know, it's the it's a dialectical thing. You've got one pole, you've got the other. Well, let's find something in the middle. You know, the Times couldn't pull that off. So the end of this segment is basically us coming down on we're still confused about what the Times is trying to do, and we hope that we get more clarity in the coming weeks. Well, th- maybe that's your position. My position is I don't care. The Times, they, <laughs> the, the, the Times, they screwed this one up. Sorry. Fair enough. See you in 2024. <laughs> you know, don't do this again. Please. I'm waiting to see what the Washington Post and a couple other you know newspapers decide to. I'll tell you what they won't be doing. This nonsense. Not if they're smart. And with that, you're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton. I'm here with Dan Horan. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton. I'm here with Dan Horan. Earlier this month, there was quite a ripple sent through both the Catholic and the secular media about the seeming break in silence by Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. 
potentially the second time in a year after he spoke out in April 2019 on what he felt the causes of the church's sexual abuse crisis were, namely the licentious era of the 1960s. This time, the retired Bishop of Rome was said to have co-authored a book with Cardinal Robert Serra in defense of the Roman Church's discipline on clerical celibacy for diocesan priests. This has largely been seen as a preemptive attack on the possibility of Pope Francis's permitting the ordination of some married men in parts of the world, such as in the Pan-Amazon region in South America, facing extreme clergy shortages. The idea is that Sarah, and ostensibly Benedict, wanted to spin the narrative in advance of Pope Francis's promulgation of a post-synodal apostolic exhortation. It's worth noting that this possible change to church discipline is something strongly endorsed by the October 2019 Synod of Bishops on the Amazon and something Pope Francis has indicated an openness to permitting. Within days of this announcement, including the release of a book cover featuring both Benedict and Sarah's names and photos equally prominently by the English publisher Ignatius Press, Benedict's personal secretary announced that the former Bishop of Rome had no intention of co-authoring this book and merely passed along a single essay, which may serve as a contribution to what is largely the work of Sarah alone. This ecclesiastical and theological melee has surfaced a number of questions and concerns, including the meaning and practice of clerical celibacy in the Western Church, the role and identity of a retired pope, and the political machinations at work to undermine Pope Francis and the Synod of Bishops. Dan, where do we even begin to unpack this? So many things, David. So many, many things. Maybe we can start with what what I think is the simplest, and that's the kind of facts on the ground around this book debacle. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, he's the Emeritus Bishop of Rome. He's the former pope. Those are all appropriate titles. He is not the pope, though it's confusing, understandably, because he dresses still in white and has this non- theologically, non-ecclesiologically grounded term that, in his defense, was come up with kind of on the spur of the moment with not much precedent. There have been a number of very, very good commentaries by uh, at least one by a renowned historian of the church, uh, Massimo Fagioli of Villanova University, and another one by a renowned ecclesiologist, uh, Rick Gallardi of Boston College, both appeared in uh, in the glorious National Catholic Reporter. You know, obviously, I'm a little bit biased as as a columnist there, but but these are both really eminent scholars, and they both highlighted some of these kind of structural problems. That's just background and context for the confusion that has unfolded, because with a retired pope who is perceived, whether in reality or otherwise, is perceived to have had different ideological emphases or perspectives than the sitting bishop of Rome, the only pope, Pope Francis. Those who are unhappy with some of the direction or the tenor of teaching of Pope Francis will use Benedict as kind of their quote-unquote pope. And I remember you telling the story of having a conversation with a with a nun who, you know, said something similar to this. Yeah, yeah but she basically patted her heart and she said, Benedict, Benedictus is my pope. And I was like, no, no. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, he was. He was. He was, yeah. but he's not. And I think, you know, Benedict certainly understands that. Ratzinger certainly understands that. He's too good a theologian not to. He, when he retired from the papacy, decided he, he made a public statement of silence that he would be kind of kind of cloistered in retirement, which is very appropriate, you know, and he could do his own personal scholarship and prayer and, and you know, a well-deserved re- retreat and retirement. And this is the second time it seems that he would violate that kind of commitment to silence. The first was that weird kind of thing last spring where he was 
I don't remember what occasion this, but he, he had written a little piece or was interviewed about the sex abuse crisis and was blaming again the 1960s and this sort of thing. Okay, well, that came and went. This seemed to be far more serious because at least as it was initially presented, he was the co-author of a whole book that would seem to preemptively undermine the work of the Synod of Bishops on the Amazon and Pope Francis's exercise of his universal magisterium in dealing with perhaps a, a, an exception or another change to church discipline, which we can talk about. Well, and I, I don't know if you've seen this, but there is also a, a body of correspondence that Cardinal Sarah released around this that has been translated. And in looking over that body of correspondence, it seemed clear to me that what Benedict was doing, what Ratzinger was doing, was sort of saying, I have some thoughts, you're welcome to incorporate these thoughts, but at no point was it said, hey, we'd like you to be the co-author of the book. At no point was it said, hey, this is going to be very prominent. And like, I could easily see how both sides could legitimately say, well, we were completely transparent with each other. But I can also see how in this particular moment, when Benedict's camp is saying, don't do this, this is not proper for his name to be on it. I don't understand Ignatius Press's position to say, well, we've looked at the correspondence, and it's clear that he was knowingly co-authoring this book. Right. Well, you're also introducing something else. It's incredibly unethical and actually open to litigation for them to persist with this. So that's that's something that needs to be handled elsewhere. And, and it, you know, what you're referring to is that the publisher of Ignatius Press has said, well, we hear that the Pope Emeritus has asked to have his name removed as co-author because he is not, has never understood himself to be, but we're not going to do that. That's insane. I, I mean, I just want to say that, to begin with, Ignatius Press has been the publisher of some really good material and some really good texts, particularly stuff in translation from Europe, especially German stuff, you know, the collected works of Hans Urs von Balthasar, Joseph Ratzinger, and others. But they are in terms of if we want to use the language of editorial board or oversight, the publishers are notoriously kind of, I don't know how to describe them, that aren't caricatures, kind of right-wing conservative folks, uh, folks who foment, you know, and traffic in ideology that that is supportive of this divide between Benedict and Francis, for example. And so I think this is an ideological move on their part. I, it's curious that even after Cardinal Sarah and Archbishop uh, Gotswein, who is the personal secretary of Benedict XVI, after they've acknowledged that this Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI had no intention of co-authoring this, that the publisher themselves, at least of the English translation, the French publisher is going to change it, is standing by it. it. That makes no sense at all. But if we can get to the meat of this for a minute, too, and see you know, like what is at stake here, what is the big issue, there are further complications, further questions that surface. You know, Cardinal Sarah is the outgoing prefect of the Congregation of Worship. He's been notoriously slow walking some of the things that Francis has put into place. He has publicly spoken out in opposition to some of the positions and teachings of Pope Francis and has had to backtrack some of that, including things like promoting the Latin Mass and these other things that that are really not in keeping with, even when Benedict XVI was Pope, he issued the motu proprio to allow for that, you know, more common usage of the, the Latin Mass. But he himself you know, didn't go quite as far as, as Sarah has. This business about clerical celibacy is very striking, particularly when in the in the initial day or two, we were all assuming that the that that Benedict was the co-author because it was Benedict the Sixteenth who created the the personal ordinariate to allow for the the 
conversion to Catholicism of Anglican, ordained Anglican men who are married. And so you have these former Anglican priests who become Roman Catholic priests who are married with children, and it's under the protection and the initiation of Benedict XVI. And now he's going to claim that clerical celibacy is somehow a bedrock of ministerial priesthood? That doesn't make any sense. Also, we have 23 churches that are in full communion with Rome. They're Roman Catholic from the of, of 23 Eastern Rites, which which permit married clergy. That's that's perfectly normal. And we also have on a not a super regular basis, but even before the Anglican Ordinariate, it was under John Paul II that certain Lutheran and Anglican families could convert, kind of, or, or come into full communion with the church and continue to be ministers to be ordained as priests in the church and and still be married. That and one last kind of historical tidbit is that mandatory clerical celibacy in the Western church and the Roman church wasn't normative until about a thousand years ago. And it was, it was made normative for very pragmatic reasons, not for theological reasons. So I just want to state all of those things. And I find it very curious that Cardinal Sarah who is supposed to be somebody who knows a lot about divine worship, but in many ways has demonstrated himself to be more like a Betsy DeVos who's in charge of education but doesn't know a whole lot about it or has very skewed views on it. Cardinal Sarah has demonstrated that himself. Well, let me ask you some questions here because one thing that has seemed to me from a distance, but I would appreciate your take on this, it has seemed to me from what you've just said that celibacy is not central to the the state of being of the priesthood in the way that certain other requirements are or certain other expectations would be. Nevertheless, some of the comments from Cardinal Sarah have made it seem as if his take is that celibacy is of a central importance to the I don't know the integrity of the priesthood. Am I reading that right? Yeah, you're right. And you're right to highlight the difference. Cardinal Sarah's views do not reflect church teaching. It's just as simple as that, and, and I've already explained why. Also, when we talk about the hierarchy of truths that the Second Vatican Council describes it, the fact that not all church teaching is of the same weight, some is more important, some of it is taught with the charism of infallibility, it's irreformable, and other things are of lesser weight. And the category of church discipline under which clerical celibacy for diocesan priests in the West, that is of the lowest level. It's church discipline. It's something that can be changed. The analogy I often use when talking about other things that fall into this category are things like the abstention of meat on Fridays during Lent. That is a church discipline. As a rule, it stands, but it's something that can be changed or abrogated, like when you have a local bishop when a St. Patrick's Day falls on a Friday and a local bishop says, I exempt members of the church of this diocese from that disciplinary observation. And oftentimes he'll say something like, but I encourage you to pick another day or something like that. But it's not essential to the liturgical or faith perspective about around the purpose of the season of Lent, for instance. The same thing is true about holy days of obligation that are movable feasts at times or that get subsumed if it's a Monday into a Sunday celebration and so forth. I think part of the issue, and I bet this affects Sarah's outlook too, I think part of the issue is that one of the things that in the modern era that is so distinctive about ordained ministry, or at least presbyteral ministry in the church, is that in the Roman church, celibacy is a requirement. Celibacy is the practice, is the discipline. And so there's a mystique, there's a, there's a lot that gets kind of projected onto that as distinctive, when in practice, culturally, it is distinctive. 
But theologically, it has no bearing whatsoever on the ministry itself or on the validity of orders or on the necessity. There's, there's nothing in terms of the ordination's matter and form that have anything to do with celibacy. It just couldn't be because then otherwise, if that were true, then you'd have to talk about an invalid ministerial priesthood for the first thousand years of the church, including, you know, as it happens, St. Peter is traditionally viewed as the first bishop of Rome, the first pope, as we say, and yet he clearly had a mother-in-law that was healed by Jesus himself, you know, was married, presumably had children and so forth. And that's commonplace throughout early church history and even later on. And it's also true that Pope Benedict himself could not have legitimately authorized the establishment of a personal ordinariate for Anglican clergy who are married to come and validly celebrate the sacraments in the Roman church. So if we look at this, I mean, it's just so plainly nonsensical to claim that this is essential. It raises questions for me about what's the real agenda. And I think there are a couple proposals, if I may. Yeah. One is it's an anti-Francis thing. The second thing is it's a control thing. The third thing is just cultural shifts that people have, you know, again, because it seems so startling because of its counterculturality, that I think people don't want anything to change. This is the church I know. This is the ministry as I understand it. This is how I want it to be. And then I have, this is a controversial claim, but I think it's true too. I think it has to do with part of a larger piece about the church's discomfort around and transparency around human sexuality, not just a sort of icky factor of human sexuality within the confines of marriage, but I think the slippery slope that some people are afraid of is what happens if this becomes normative, if the church discipline goes back to what it was maybe a thousand years ago and clerical celibacy is optional and you have more married clergy and then you have clergy who aren't married. Well, what's that about? You know, and then does it raise the specter of the church's inherent homophobia? You know, on the one hand, there's all these teachings and, and pastoral kind of contortions, as we've talked about before, around the church's relationship to the reality of LGBTQ persons. But what happens when you, you don't have the blanket coverage of identifying who's straight and who's gay or who's other, you know, and so on and so forth? Do you see what I say there? I think so. And I want to take that, but also I want to kind of ask a, a final question, and that is, what does it mean for the church right now that we have factions within the church who are putting forward the idea that Francis is not a legitimate pope and that Benedict was the last legitimate pope? But then we also have factions who say not even John Paul was a legitimate pope and we haven't had a legitimate pope since before Vatican II. Like that speaks to a greater, I think, discord and problem in the state of the church than, than I think a lot of Catholic commentators are really thinking about right now. And I'm wondering what your take on that is. I think that's true. I think there are very few people who actually hold that view. They just tend to be very loud. And I think social media amplifies that sort of discord. I think what you find is uh, people more like that nun that you talk to who like Benedict XVI or what they think he stands for or believed or taught, oftentimes it's what people think rather than what's actually true. And this is something you and I know as theologians and as professors that a lot of our students come into the classrooms with certain presumptions about things. And then all you have to do is start actually looking at the text or looking at the history and it, everything starts to fall apart. So I think that that's the case that more often than not, people are are informed and shaped by the opinions of others that sometimes are incredibly minority opinions and opinions that are not well-informed but become magnified by social media. There's a megaphone out there. 
So I do think it is a part of it, though. I do think that it's interesting that Sarah is now the outgoing prefect of this congregation, and this is sort of his raising the field, as it were, on the way out or salting, <laughs> salting the field, potentially, you know. And I'd like to think that it's not so malicious. I think he actually does genuinely believe that clerical celibacy in the West is really something that needs to be maintained. And I don't know that he's in- inherently wrong, but his arguments are garbage. His arguments are, ju- I mean, quite frankly, there's the history bears very clearly. The theological arguments are, are laid out there. Are, are, that's the thing that drives me crazy. And I don't mean to be so insulting if people take this as an insult, but it's, I think, a fair analogy. He's behaving a bit like a Betsy DeVos in the, as Secretary of Education. You know, he has some outlandish views that are not becoming of the prefect of the Congregation for Worship, who's supposed to know a lot about sacramental theology. So that's where I have some serious concerns, quite frankly. And that may be a good place for us to leave it right now. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm still here with David Dalton. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about news, politics, current events, and lots of other exciting things, all viewed through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith, this is the second installment of Sacraments, 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 Sacraments. This season, we've decided to take a bit of time each episode to talk about the seven sacraments of the church, seven capital S sacraments, by the way. Last episode, we talked about baptism. This time around, we are continuing the rite of Christian initiation and looking at Eucharist. Along with baptism and confirmation, confirmation which we'll talk about in another episode, maybe the next one, Eucharist is referred to as one of the three sacraments of initiation. But of these three, the Eucharist holds a particularly central place. As the Catechism reminds us in its summary, it is in the Eucharist that we unite ourselves with the heavenly liturgy and anticipate eternal life when God will be all in all. As Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Church's constitution on the sacred liturgy reminds us the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith and life. There's a lot to talk about here, David. What shall we get into first? Well, first of all, so I come from a background where I hung out in my early formative years as a Christian with a lot of Protestants. They were all over the map in terms of some of them would bake bread and you'd get kind of fresh-baked bread, and some of them would bring challah, sort of Jewish bread that's used in, in liturgy, and use that for the Eucharist. And some would have little little saltine crackers, or the equivalent of a little, like little oyster crackers. And so for a lot of potential listeners out there, I guess one of the first questions that could be asked is, you know, when you go to Catholic Mass, you always are getting the same sort of thing. It's a little flat, pressed little disc with a cross in it that has kind of a wan taste to it. Why is it that there's so much variety in the Protestant notion of what the the element of the Eucharist is when it comes to bread and Catholics are so uniform? That is such a, a basic question. I was not expecting that. That's, that's fair <laughs> enough. Um, the short answer is supply and demand. So the supply for, I mean, the, the Catholic Church is the largest Christian denomination. We'll just focus on the United States, on the United, in the U.S., but also globally, you know, with over 1.2 billion uh, members. And so part of it is just practicality. And so there are companies that mass produce these little breads, as they were, though they don't often feel or look like bread, which raises a question, frankly, about their efficacy, because part of 
the the symbolon in Greek, the the mystery part of the symbol, what's supposed to be present in the elements themselves, as, as Augustine would say, the res, the the thing itself, is that it's supposed to feel and look and taste like bread as the wine is as well. So when it comes to the valid matter for the celebration of the sacrament of the Eucharist, the Catholic Church says you need to have unleavened bread made of wheat and water, and you need to have wine. So no grape juice, no cinnamon toast crunch, no, you know, any of this kind of stuff. I asked the basic question because I was interested in getting at something and you gave me a fascinating answer because I thought that you were going to go all theological and instead you went market values. Like this is just, this is economies of scale. That's exactly what it is. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. Okay, so now let's... let's there get... is no the... In other words, there is no theological reason. You could use pita bread, you could use matzah, you could use any unleavened bread... And it's a valid it's a valid element for the sacrament of, of the Eucharist. This is fascinating. I think that would probably blow some Catholics' minds to realize that. But let's talk now about less visible, more invisible things. So I, I think that there's also across the, the wider Christian spectrum a lot of ideas about what is going on in the Eucharist, what happens. And so from a Catholic perspective, what basically is happening when someone says, the body of Christ, and, and a person says, amen. Yeah, that's great. So a couple different things. Augustine says several things are happening there. So this goes back to the fourth century, the great doctor of the church, the doctor of grace, St. Augustine. He says, obviously, a couple things. The first and foremost, what's happening when we gather at the Eucharist is that the body of Christ visible, which is all the baptized, the church, all of us, like St. Paul says, St. Augustine reiterates, and others do as well throughout the tradition, we come and make present in a real way Christ, you know, as the assembly with the presider. That's one thing. We hear the word proclaimed in which the word of God makes present Christ, who is the incarnate word of God. And then most especially, we might say, yeah, actually, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the church's document on the liturgy says, especially present in the Eucharistic species is the sacramental presence of Christ. So Christ is made present in all these different ways, these four ways, the assembly and presider, the word of God, and in the Eucharistic species, but especially so. So what is especially made present? And that's where we need to be very particular. Sometimes you hear people say, Catholics believe in the real presence. That's true. But what do we mean by real presence? We mean, more technically, the sacramental presence of Christ. So here's a trick. It's kind of a trick question. It might come across as a trick question. True or false, Jesus is present in the Eucharistic species at Mass? I think a lot of people would say true. Yes, and they would be wrong. They'd be wrong. This goes back to the ninth century controversies, two Benedictine monks, sacramental theologians, uh, Robertus and Retramnus, great names. Pascatius Robertus is the full name of the one dude. And they went back and forth about trying to clarify what do we mean by the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And one, there was this kind of devotional thing, and you'll hear this sometimes among Catholics, about the bloody sacrifice or the unbloody sacrifice. And, and this, this one was talking about how Jesus is kind of brought down from heaven, you know, and we talk about you know, the, the body of Jesus, and we're like crunching the bones again. It's really graphic, actually. And what gets clarified, to make a long story short, is that it is not the physical body of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, who suffered, died, was buried, and was raised from the dead, it is not his body. We're not gnawing on the arm of Jesus. What we are is receiving sacramentally the presence of Christ, you know, God's presence on earth, 
as such, but to make a distinction between what we might call the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. Is that making sense? It is, and I, I want to make sure that listeners are following. And so we're not saying that somehow there's a magical kind of hocus-pocus where a body, like a corpse, shows up on the altar, and then suddenly we're... So this it's is... interesting you choose the phrase hocus-pocus. Because hocus corpus meum. I realize yeah. it, was, it was intentional, but, uh, but I think a lot of times my atheist friends say, yeah, you guys are basically vampires or you're, you're cannibals, and this is not cannibalism, it's not vampirism, no. it's not... We're not no. talking about zombie Jesus here. No, we're not really talking about Jesus. We're talking about the sacramental presence of Christ. I mean, it, that's what the church teaches. And that's why you hear, for instance, like after the Lamb of God and the sign of peace, when we affirm, our, again, a reiteration kind of our unworthiness of receiving such a great gift of God's self to us, we say this phrase from the gospel, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and I shall be healed. But before that, the priest says, behold, the Lamb of God. He doesn't say, and he should not say, though sometimes priests go off script, and, and there's nothing more cringeworthy than say, behold, this is Jesus. It is not Jesus. It is the Lamb of God. It is the Word incarnate. It is the presence of Christ. It is the, you know, the second person of the Trinity made present to us in this gift of the Lord's Supper and so forth. Well, and I, I was talking to some students a couple of weeks ago about exactly that phrasing, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. We went back and we looked at that passage. And when we look at what the Roman centurion is saying, it was basically saying, listen, sometimes I show up in person and I'm effective. Other times I simply say, it's going to happen and it's just as effective. And what I was trying to say to them was pretty much what you're saying is that it doesn't have to be the body of Jesus showing up in person there for this to effectively be Jesus's, the Christ the presence of Christ for us, that Jesus doesn't have to be recapitulated as a body for that to happen. It can happen in the same way that the Roman centurion understood that there was power at a, at a distance or power with physical removal. And, and I think that that, under, that underscores kind of what we're trying to say in that moment is like, we're not saying that Jesus is physically showing up here. We're saying that Christ is present with us in his word. Oh, and we can say that Christ is physically present to us under this Eucharistic species. I think that's important. I, again, I, I know this may seem abstract to our listeners. Mm -hmm. So to say that we believe in the real presence is to believe in the real presence of Christ. And that to say, when you say Jesus, you're talking about a historical person who was the word incarnate, fully divine, fully human, etc. Here we're talking about, again, the eternal word coming to us, not as one of us, but under the elements of bread and wine. Okay. So that's really important. We're not talking about Jesus the historical person we're talking about, Christ, the eternal word. Let me see if I'm following. So the second person of the Trinity, the word with a capital W, shows up in Jesus Christ in a historical moment, and Christ is present. The word, the second person of the Trinity, is present with us there, if I'm following. Also, when the words of institution are properly and licitly said, Christ is showing up there as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word in those species. Well, I got to well. stop you because you're using a lot of qualifiers that don't apply okay. because something could still be a valid celebration of the Eucharist that isn't licit. I love it. Tell me more. Well, this goes back to what we were talking about before. Licit just means it's authorized. Valid means it really happens. So I'll give you an example. Former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick has been removed from public ministry indefinitely, right? He, he is been kicked out of the College of Cardinals, but he is still a bishop and he's still a priest. You can't unordain somebody. And so if he starts celebrating Mass and follows, you know, the Eucharistic prayer and intends to, as the, the old kind of manuals would call it, intends to confect the sacred mysteries, it is validly 
mass. It is it's legitimately the presence of Christ. It is valid, you know, sacrament. It's totally illicit. He's not authorized to do it. He's not allowed to do it. That's that's a difference between lucidity and validity. So given the fact that I, I fumbled the words there, the other pieces that I was laying into place about the the historical showing up of the word in Jesus and the historical showing yeah. up of the word in the presence in the Eucharist, yeah. am I and onto something? You're onto something here. And it's also important to realize that the term Christus, the anointed one, is an affirmation of Jesus of Nazareth messiahship. So we're we're affirming something about the divinity of Jesus of Nazareth, who we call the Christ, and that same acclamation of the divinity of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, we, we affirm in the presence of the divinity of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. So that's, that's the parallel. But to say Jesus, that's where you get into cannibalism stuff. We're not talking about Jesus of Nazareth, you know, is this his arm? Is this his eye? What are we chewing on here, right? So that's, I just want to set that aside and, and say for a minute, then people will say, well, Another kind of thing that people think about often with the Catholic Church is that the difference between Catholics and Protestants is that when we say we believe in the real presence, we mean transubstantiation. And you hear the T word thrown around a lot. And I just want to make it very clear that, and and you got to listen carefully to how I say this, listeners, the Church does not teach that we believe in transubstantiation. What the Council of Trent, the Church's teaching on transubstantiation, says is that it is a fitting way to understand what we believe— so the distinction there is really important. Catholics do not believe in transubstantiation as such. Transubstantiation is a theory based on Aristotelian hylomorphism and medieval appropriation of that, most notably in Thomas Aquinas' writings, but also in others, that says that everything that exists in the material world is composed of substance and form. And the substance of something is the whatness of what it is, and the form is how it appears in reality, and it has accidental properties like taste and shape and weight and color and so forth. And so using transubstantiation as an analogy, somebody like Thomas Aquinas says, well, how do we account for the fact that it tastes and feels and looks like bread and wine still, and yet we say it is, on some metaphysical level, something else. It is the presence of Christ among us. And his proposal is, well, you know, if we borrow Aristotle's worldview, we can say the substance, kind of the, the whatness of it changes, truly changes, but its appearance remains the same. And in this principle of hylomorphism of substance and accidents allows for that kind of parallel to play out. Now, what the church teaches is that's not a bad way to think about it. That's perfectly legitimate. But we should not conflate it to say that that's what we believe. That's not a true statement. We don't, we don't assert that's not a tenet of our faith. It's a way to explain what we mean. So what is it? What's the tenet of our faith? What we say we believe when we say amen to the proclamation of the body of Christ, we say we believe in the sacramental presence of Christ in this unique way in the blessed sacrament. I can say more about that too because Augustine has a beautiful sermon 272 where Augustine talks about when the priest holds up the, the blessed sacrament at the end of the Eucharistic prayer and says, you know, behold the Lamb of God, behold the one who takes away the sins of the world, and you say amen to this, Augustine says, you know, see who you are, become what you receive, recognizing that we too are the body of Christ. We see the fact that we are united to Christ on some kind of intimate level through baptism and even more so through the sharing and communion. And so it's a, it's a reminder that it's not just us worshiping the Eucharist is if God comes down to us under the species of the Blessed Sacrament as bread and wine, and that that has nothing to do with us. But through baptism, like we talked about in the last episode, we are knitted to Christ, we're knitted in communion 
to God, into the life of the Trinity in a unique way. And when we receive communion and we say amen to the body of Christ, we're also affirming an amen that we are the body of Christ in the world. So let me see if I've got an analogy and can kind of sum up what you just said. So I have, what we're talking about is a kind of a a loving, intimate connectedness to Christ through this. And we could look at someone who is in love with a spouse, and we could say, ah, you're in love, and love is a mystery. But a person could get really, really wrapped up in, but are you giving your spouse flowers? And you could say, well, no, I'm not. And you could say, well, then it's not really love, because what we've done is we've mixed up a particular mechanism for showing and expressing love and for thinking about, you know, a visible sign of love for the love itself. And we could say, if you're not giving flowers, then you're not really understanding what love is. No, you can completely understand what love is and not have that particular explanation of love in terms of the giving of flowers. You can have this sacramental presence and not explain it through transubstantiation. There may be other ways to explain it. Transubstantiation may be a good way to explain it. Giving flowers to your spouse may be a good way to express love. But if you mix up and make that the only primary way to talk about it, you've sort of put the cart before the horse. Sort of. I'm not sure if I followed that analogy entirely, but the principle is exactly right. That the term transubstantiation is not a church teaching. It is a way to describe how what we believe happens. I guess what I'm trying to say is there are some people for whom if you don't say what happens at that moment is transubstantiation, they will say you've you've misunderstood what Roman Catholics teach. That's right. And yeah. you're saying no no you're that's that's yeah. not co- that's that's taking an explanation that's or, right. or taking a visible sort of of kind of way of of mechanizing this and mistaking it for the mystery that's there. That's exactly right. And giving flowers and mistaking that for the mystery of love would be kind of what I'm trying to say. At the risk of of dragging this out, I I would actually think another analogy is more fitting. Bring it. Um, And it's right up your alley, as we talked about with books and your interest in physics, which is quantum mechanics and the mathematical formulae and the observation, whether it's a cloud mapping or whatever, of the location of certain particles like electrons. We don't actually know where they are, but we have a process to describe where we think they are Mm -hmm. because it points to a mystery that's beyond our grasp ability. So true is that with the physical world and physics and and quantum mechanics, even more so is it true with the mystery of God. And so I think that that's exactly right. What you're getting at is, is exactly right. And, and that's, that's to say to people, if you do not understand what transubstantiation means, if you don't understand, because in order to actually understand it, my guess is 99% of the people who throw that word around have no idea what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. They've just somewhere along the way picked up that Catholics believe in this. And it's not their fault. I mean, that's just, you can pick it up anywhere. And, and sometimes it's in religious ed, or sometimes it's in RCIA, or wherever you have it. But you don't need to understand it. In fact, in order to truly understand transubstantiation, you have to understand all this medieval and ancient philosophy. And, and it's not necessary. The church doesn't require that of you. What we do say is what we believe what happens in the sacrament of Eucharist is that God comes to us in this particular way. It is mysterious. It is beyond our comprehension. And if you claim to understand it fully, then what you understand isn't what's going on. I've got one final question. Oftentimes we see the Eucharist, not oftentimes, but we, we do see the Eucharist being weaponized in certain cases where a bishop or a priest will determine that a person is in sin, persistent sin or whatever, and they will withhold or deny the Eucharist. I don't want to ask about that specifically, but I want to use that as a springboard to ask this question. 
I oftentimes will approach the Eucharist having not gone through the sacrament of reconciliation. I will approach the Eucharist in a state of what, from I, I guess from one standpoint, the Church would call a state of sin. And I'm wondering how fearful should we as lay people be in approaching the Eucharist, because sometimes you'll hear more conservative people talk about how powerful this is and how we bring damnation on ourselves if we take it unworthily. I'd really like to ask that question for my fellow lay people. How scared should we be if we haven't confessed immediately before taking the Eucharist? Depends on what, you're, what you've done. <laughs> okay. I mean, the sacrament of penance, which we'll get to in another segment later this season, has developed a lot over the last 2,000 years, I'll say that. But its origins are found in the early centuries of Christianity as a means, as a ritual, as a process of reintegration into community and and restoring relationship with God, oneself, and, and the rest of the community after really grave offenses. The truth is we all present ourselves to the Eucharist unworthily because we're all sinners. If we understand worthiness to mean perfection or some kind of clear slate or something like that, then that's impossible. If that weren't true, we wouldn't need a penitential act every time we celebrate the Eucharist. That is a rite of absolution. My point is simply that the penitential act is, it is an absolution of, it's an acknowledgement of our sins. It's a silent confession of it, the calling to mind of our sins. It is an absolution of that sinfulness. So the, the kind of ordinary everyday things that we are encountering and and permit by way of our sinfulness are accounted for in the penitential act to prepare us to hear the word of God and to come to the table of the Lord. There are some things, though, that are much more grave. You know, did you murder somebody? Did you, are you committing adultery? Are you know, these kinds of things that are much more serious that in the old sort of parlance, we would talk about mortal sins. Those are the kinds of things that have recourse to the sacrament of penance prior to communion. But you know, you've raised a point that is worth its own segment of conversation around the weaponizing of the Eucharist, which is it's not our place as ministers of the sacrament to determine whether or not somebody should receive the Eucharist or not. You know, you talked about approaching worthily, unworthily. The idea is it's, it's about the internal discernment of the individual and to do so with an informed conscience, to do an examination of conscience, to do it perhaps under the you know, pastoral guidance and care of, of, a, of a priest or deacon or minister of the church, however you find it, your spiritual director. But it's not up for the minister of the sacrament to be denying people. And that's how it's often been used. I will say this too about how, you know, this business about needing to be absolutely, you know, as if you need to go to confession five minutes before mass because you might, you know, sin or have an impure thought or lie to somebody before you receive the communion. And so, you you know, you kind of have to like, go right up to it. That sort of thing is dispelled. It was not an issue in, in the 4th century with St. Augustine. It wasn't an issue in the 11th century and 12th century with Peter Lombard and Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure and others. Because, you know, the way that I think Augustine says this well, and Lombard picks this up and sets the tone for a lot of medieval theologians, that when we come to receive the Eucharist, we can receive it, he says, in two ways. The first is the way everybody receives it, sacramentally, he calls it. We receive the Eucharistic sacramentally because Christ is sacramentally present in it. Through the sacrament, what is and appears as bread and wine is the body and blood of Christ, of Christ, not of Jesus, (laughs) of Christ. Second, he says, though, if we are in this quote-unquote state of grace, whatever that means, right, it's another kind of popular term that people throw around without 
thinking about what they're talking about. We can talk about that some other time. But if you are in another state of openness, maybe one of, of right disposition and so forth, you can also receive, you do, you do not only receive the Eucharist sacramentally, you receive the Eucharist spiritually. And that is a kind of different relationship to it, you know. It doesn't change the Eucharist itself. It, it's about your disposition in receiving it. And I think that's lost in a lot of the modern understandings, you know. It becomes, we hold on to the real presence side of things, the sacramental presence of Christ, but instead of recognizing that God takes care of God's self in terms of giving the gift of God's self yet again, even to sinners, as we all are, but that we don't need to protect the blessed sacrament from someone we perceive as sinful. And I think that's really the crux of, of the question that you're asking. You know, how is this playing out? It's so seriously inappropriate for people to deny anybody communion. Now, it may be wrong for somebody to approach the Blessed Sacrament because for whatever reason, their belief, their state of kind of moral rectitude, their life choices, whatever, but it's, it's never, and I'm just going to be bold about this, it's never the, the role of the minister to deny somebody that. We don't know their internal state or, or any of these other issues. That's, I think, a very hopeful place for us to end this discussion on. And I just want to say thanks again for taking the time today to catch up on all these things. And I'm, I'm just going to be praying for you and for your back. I hope that you feel better soon. <laughs> Thank you. As always, uh, you know, keeping you and your family in prayer and all of our listeners, too. Thank you all for the support. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have five seasons worth of episodes going back into history. We hope that you listen to all of them, and we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening.